0: Well, before we start our training, let's pray a high-risk prayer, shall we? Father, Jesus, we want you to tell us this morning, in the next few moments, whatever it is you think we need to hear, regardless of what it is. Thank you for answering our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. When her husband, hang on a sec, there we go. When her husband died, Grandma Pat, that's Rochelle's mom, moved from Washington State to live with us for about seven years. And God used this season. Uh, In her last week, she was in a room at Baptist East. She was scheduled for surgery Friday morning. But I have a very vivid memory of Thursday night, the Thursday night before she died, She was laughing with friends from Collierville Bible Church. God had used that seven years to make a difference in her life. And she had friends who were journeying together with her in Christ. And I just remember different ones of them were in the room with her. And she was laughing and and delighting in their presence and their friendship and the fellowship and the joys that we have in Christ. Little did we know that early Friday morning... Before the procedure, she traded this earth for the presence of the Lord. But I still have that vivid memory of that Thursday night. Forty or fifty years after the fact, and with the Spirit's help, the Apostle John recalls in vivid detail what Jesus said on the Thursday night before his death. And he's recorded for us that recollection in John chapters 13 through 17. Chapters 13 through 16 are a conversational instruction time. And then in chapter 17, he prays. But almost 25% of the gospel of John is recording what Jesus said and did in his last moments with his friends. Now, the disciples are clueless about what is coming. They, they do not know, but Jesus knows what is coming. And so he is going to speak to them in this Upper Room Discourse about what is going to follow, both immediately and for some time. So, for example, in John 13, 19, he says, from now on, I'm telling you before it comes to pass. In other words, he's giving them prophecy. He's telling them, here is what is going to happen, and I'm telling you before it happens. He also said in John 13, little children, I'm with you a little while longer. That means that it's about to happen. Wh- whatever it is that is going to happen is going to happen shortly. If they only knew it was going to happen in about t- 24 hours, it would be a totally different world that they were in. In John 16, 28, he said, I came forth from the Father, and have come into the world, I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. So in this upper room discourse, he's saying, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. It's going to happen shortly. One feature of it is, I'm going back home. You're going to stay behind. In fact, in John 13, 36, he says, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me later. You're going to join me. Basically, he's anticipating an interim of separation. He's saying, let me help you understand what is about to happen because you're going to feel lost when it starts to happen. But here's what's coming, and it will be an interim in which I am off the scene. Now, they have known the presence of Jesus for three years. They have walked with him. They have eaten with him. But he's saying, I'm not going to be here. I'm going to be gone. We are currently dwelling in that interim between Jesus' first advent and his second advent. Jesus saw this interim coming in the 24 hours before his death, and he saw the world his children would live in before his return. He actually prayed for us that night. Do you realize that? He actually prayed for you and me. Here's what he said in his prayer that evening in John 17, 20. He says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. That is when Jesus was looking at the 11, he was looking past them and seeing you and seeing me. And he's praying for us. Jesus has an interim plan. He not only saw what was coming and told them a little bit about it, but he also used this opportunity to give them some information that was going to make a big difference. He tells us several times, here's why I'm telling you this, and let's just review a few of them. For example, in John 14, 27, he says, Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. In other words, when things start unraveling, or so it seems, I want you to be able to say, Oh, this is happening just as Jesus said. We're good. Trust him. Don't feel like the the rug has been pulled out from under you. Everything is happening the way Jesus had planned for it to happen. So he told them what he did because he wants them to trust, to believe. These things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. His words are intended to give us grounds for celebrating in the interim. By the way, this is why we sing. I love Is He Worthy. That is one of my favorite songs. We sing in a time when Jesus has left the planet because we know where it's going because Jesus mapped it all out. And then there is this one. This is the one I want to really zero in on, all right? This is John 16:1. In this Upper Room Discourse, this is what he says. These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. Jesus is saying, I want to prepare you for the interim. And by the way, not just you, 11, but all those who are going to believe in me in this interim, everyone in this room who knows Jesus Christ, I am telling you the things I am telling you so that you may be kept from stumbling. Let's take that passage apart just for a little bit. So that introduces what's called a purpose clause. In other words, I'm speaking these things to you for the express purpose that you may be kept from stumbling. Now, stumbling is a Greek word, skandalizo, but scandal is, a, is an English word that we get from that. It's the same word that's found in the parable of the soils. For example, in Mark four seventeen, it says this, and they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they, here's skandalizo, fall away. When Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling, what he's saying is the content in this upper room discourse is designed for we who dwell in the interim and it's designed to keep us from falling away. Because our world is moving in a direction that is going to make it very easy for that to happen. So in this discourse Jesus said what he did in the upper room discourse so that all who dwell in the interim between his first advent and his second advent when he returns don't get tripped up this upper room discourse was written for you and for me to keep us from falling down losing our steady pace for him getting off track his words are not just good for an interim between pastors but the interim between advents and we can use this incredible instruction from jesus last 24 hours to develop a faith that flourishes in a world that's going off the rails I liken this to a series of core exercises. That's why Jeffrey was talking about the connection between physical core exercises and spiritual core exercises. Embedded in this upper room discourse are seven key principles that if we will develop spiritual habits and practices that grow out of them, it will keep us from getting tripped up, from losing our faith. Now, I realize that Those who truly know Jesus Christ cannot lose their faith. But it is possible for us to be deluded and think we know him when in fact we don't. And those are the ones who can slip away. So let's make sure by doing everything we can. All right, so we're going to talk about strengthening your core. And what I mean by that is a series of faith exercises that will help us to stay strong in the interim in which we now live. Now, I've found seven core principles embedded in this upper room discourse all of them are not discussed just once but each is revisited numerous times in the course of the evening it's as if jesus had these seven things he wanted to say and he keeps coming back to them here they are here's all seven these are the seven that we will consider in this series one heart one way one truth one life one mission one peace and one hope This morning, we're going to consider one heart as it is expressed in John 13 through 7. And it shows up 12 different times in 23 different verses. Now, I've picked one of those passages where it's discussed to really zero in. And this will help you get started as you start to develop the one heart disciplines. All right. Reading from John 14 verses 21 through 25. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not not Iscariot, who's already left, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you're going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is mine, but the fa- is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. Well, let's take apart some of the details of that passage so that we can understand them. So, for example, in the first verse that I read, he says, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me and has and keeps, those are verbs, are both present participles. In the Greek language, both manner and time is attached to verbs. And so to, to say, he who has my commandments in the present tense means it's an ongoing activity. He who is having and he who is keeping. The word keep is the Greek word tereo, which involves both obeying and guarding. He doesn't just obey, but he guards the commandments. And later he'll say, my words. He says, you cannot keep what you don't have. You have to have it and keep it. What that means is that it needs to be something you've internalized. You have taken the commandments of Jesus or the words of Jesus, and you've embedded them in your very soul. And then you're going to tereo them, you're going to keep them, you're going to let your thoughts and your words and your deeds align with them, and you're going to guard them. These seven core principles, by the way, are seven things for which we will die. I don't have a vanity license plate on my truck, but if I did, it would be die before deny. Because there are some things I will never compromise on, and this is one, I love Jesus, And if you get me to deny that and say, I hate Jesus, I'll die before I will do that. That's what these are. These are defining characteristics. It says, this is, and it's a present. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. This is who we are. In verse 23, he says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And there, the word keep is a future tense. This is what to me, is going to help us unpack this principle. He says, if anyone loves me, this is what will happen in the future. He will keep my word. This is what will happen. If someone loves Jesus, he will keep his word. The one follows the other. So here is our first core principle that I want you to understand. One heart, love of Jesus propels obedience if you love me and if you are loving me you will keep his commandments you will keep his word one heart love of Jesus propels obedience now I want to help you understand this principle so I'm gonna do something that will hopefully help you do that you probably notice the string here and those of you over there don't see it but I have a rocket attached to this string now, uh, please be advised, I did not put the motor in the rocket, okay? We're not going to, I thought about it, but we're not going to set the rocket off in the building here. Now, I did go uh, to Shelby Farms and we set off the rocket, so you will get to see that. We'll give you a video of that. But what I want you to see is I'm going to try to get the rocket to go up using my personal effort, all right? Okay, that was really, I know you're really impressed, okay? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try one more time, all right? All right. Now, what are you seeing there? <laughs> when I try to do this, using my own strength, the rocket doesn't go very far, does it? But here's what happens when this object is rocket propelled. Watch this. And here's a slow motion since it went by so fast. And interestingly, I don't know if God was in charge of this or not, but uh, oftentimes, uh, you know, the rocket will, uh, it has a a little explosive thing where the nose cone will come off and the parachute comes out. None of that deployed. So the rocket went up, and we never found it. because, Because what God wants you to understand is, When you love me, that is like rocket-propelled faith. It, It takes off, and it goes places. In fact, it just went into the heavens, and Luke and I never found it again. One heart, love of Jesus propels obedience. Oh, you can try to be obedient on your own, but look how far that goes. But when you love the Lord, it's like a rocket to obedience. Obedience, when it's the product of human effort, is frankly as unimpressive as me (laughs) throwing this. Doing the right thing to be well thought of or to avoid getting in trouble is mundane. Do the minimum obedience. But obedience, when it is driven by love for the Lord, is like a rocket taken off, and it soars to the heights. And it will take you somewhere unbelievable. In fact, in this very passage, Jesus tells us some of these soaring results. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and you will actually experience the love of Father and Jesus. You will actually move through life in ways where there are experiences that remind you, Father loves me. Jesus loves me. Jesus says, I'm going to divulge myself to you. You're going to get Jesus. You're going to understand things that he's doing. Uh, Next week, I'll tell you a really interesting story about one of those moments that I've experienced. Furthermore, you're going to share life with Jesus and Father. It is going to be as if you and Jesus and Father are walking through life together. If you love me, that will propel keeping my word and obedience, and you and Father and Jesus are gonna to walk together. Notice, by the way, in that passage toward the end, it says this He who does not love me does not keep my words. Love and keep are both present tense. In other words, non-keepers are non-lovers. Someone who doesn't want to keep the words of Jesus or has no interest in keeping the commands of Jesus betrays himself as someone who has no love for Jesus. Basically, this passage is saying there's two groups. There's love-propelled keepers And there's non-keepers who don't love. Loving Jesus makes all the difference. kind of reminds me of Doug and Persnickety. If you are a pet owner, if you have a dog, or if you're a cat owner, or if you have both, some of what I'm about to say will probably resonate with you. Now, what if pets kept a diary? Let's read Doug's diary, shall we? 8 AM, dog food, my favorite thing. 9.30 AM, a car ride, my favorite thing. 9.40 AM, a walk in the park, my favorite thing. 10.30 AM, got rubbed and petted, my favorite thing. 12 p.m., lunch, my favorite thing. 1 p.m., played in the yard, my favorite thing. 3 p.m., wag my tail, my favorite thing. 5 p.m., milk bones, my favorite thing. 7 p.m., got to play ball, my favorite thing. 8 p.m., wow, watch TV with the people, my favorite thing. 11 p.m., sleeping on the bed, my favorite thing. And then there's Persnickety's diary. Let's read from day 983, shall we? My captors continue to taunt me with bizarre little dangling objects. They dine lavishly on fresh meat while the other inmates and I are fed hash or some sort of dry nuggets. Although I make my contempt for the rations perfectly clear, I must eat something in order to keep up my strength. The only thing that keeps me going is my dream of escape. In an attempt to disgust them, I once again vomit on the carpet. (laughs) Today I decapitated a mouse and dropped its headless body at their feet. I had hoped this would demonstrate what I am capable of and strike fear in their hearts. However, they merely made condescending comments about what a good little hunter I am. There was some sort of assembly of their accomplices tonight. I was placed in solitary confinement for the duration of the event. However, I could hear the noises and smell the food. I even overheard that my confinement was due to the power of allergies. I must learn what this means and how to use it to my advantage. I am convinced that the other prisoners here are flunkies and snitches. The dog receives special privilege. He is regularly released and seems to be more than willing to return. He's obviously mentally challenged. (laughs) The bird has got to be an informant. I observe him communicating with the guards regularly. I am certain that he reports my every move. My captors have arranged protective custody for him in an elevated cell, so he is safe for now. For Doug and Persnickety, they live in the same world, but their experience could not be more different. So it is with those who love God and those who do not. Loving God changes everything. It changes our perspective, our motives, our actions. It rocket propels obedience. Love-propelled obedience will keep you from falling away in the world in which we now live. I know that because Jesus told us so. And so we aspire to become like Doug, doing what Jesus wants, my favorite thing. Can your love fade? The church in Ephesus had a great track record. They were started by the Apostle Paul, and they were a church in which you could only explain it by the hand of God. But 40 years later, after being planted by Paul, Jesus personally said to this church, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. We cannot assume that our love for the Lord will remain fervent. It can fade. Yes, we ought to love the Lord with abandon. But it's not automatic. So as I like to do, I like to raise the question, how? How can we keep our love growing? And here are some core exercises you can use to keep your love fervent so that it rocket propels your allegiance and following of the Lord. Exercise one is measure his love. In 1 John four nineteen, we read, We love... Because he first loved us. In other words, when you see how much Jesus loves us, that stimulates our love for him. Which means if we will take the measure of his love for us, if we'll actually look at, here's how much Jesus loves you, here's how much Father loves you, that that will help us to grow in our love for him. In John 15, 13, in this passage, it's another one of the love passages, he says, Greater love has no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. Which means, if I want to measure his love, a great place to go is to the cross. And in my mind's eye, to see this, I should have been there. I should have been the one that was taken to the cross. I deserved to be there. It was right for me to be there. And to experience not only death but the wrath of God in that moment. I deserved that. So do you. And yet Jesus came and he said, "Wait, wait. I will take Jim's place. But you're perfect." Yes but I will take Jim's place. In fact, it's because I'm perfect that I'm a suitable substitute for him. Now put yourself in that place. If you will take the measure of his love for us, it will help you to love him all in because you realize I can't believe that he has done this for me. Jesus could not love us more than he already does. By dying on the cross. So look at the cross and allow it to fuel your love. By the way, when we partake of communion, the bread is actually designed for this express purpose. He says, this is my body, which is for you. In other words, I took your place. And it's designed to actually, as we take the bread to say, I cannot believe how much he loves me. And I love him because he first loved me and it fuels our love for him. So that's our first exercise, is find ways to measure his love and to look at it and stare at it. Turn off the phone, turn off the TV, pull the plug on the internet, whatever you got to do and take some time looking at here is what Jesus did because he loves me. Exercise number 2 is measure your sin. This is the flip side. In Luke 7:47, Jesus was explaining the behavior of a certain woman who had come in and washed his feet. And he says, for this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Have you ever taken a sin inventory? Have you ever made a list that outlines all the reasons why God should condemn you? Now, in some of our cases, mine would be one of those. I accepted Christ. It was the real thing. Someday I'll tell you the story, even though I was accepting Christ knowing that I was a murderer. But I accepted Christ at five or six. God spared us from seeing who I would become. It was bad enough then. And then I read a verse like this, I know my history, you know your history, face it, take the measure of it. And then read this verse, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When I stand before God, he is not gonna tell me, let me me tell you all the things I have wrong with you that I'm disappointed with in you, Jim. No condemnation. He's going to say, let me tell you the things I appreciate about you. Use times of confession to deepen your love for God and for Jesus. Take the measure of all that he's forgiven you to heighten your love for him. Exercise number three is obey as a benefit, not a burden. In 1 John 5.3, John says this, and John really got it in terms of this one heart Love propels obedience. He got this principle. And he said this in uh, 1 John in his letter, 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. You tracking with what he's saying there? When, When God says, this is what I want you to do, when his word says, this is what I want you to do, it's easy to look at that and say, Instead, what he has done is actually allowed me to see something that gives him pleasure. It's like when Rochelle lets me know something that she would like for a special date, and I get to know what it is, and I want to do it because I love her. When Jesus gives us a hard thing to do, I want you to reconcile with that person Even though they slandered you, I want you to go and be like the, not be like the unforgiving steward. That means I get to give him something that's costly, that's expensive, that's exquisite. We actually get to give the one we love something he longs for. We get to do this. So replace do the minimum with exceed expectations. I love 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 5, which says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given to the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Here were people who were afflicted, who were in poverty. If you were to look at them, you would say, Man, if they took an offering there, I mean, you're going to get a few pennies, but understandably nothing. Instead, what happened was overwhelming. In fact, Paul's saying so far in the passage, he's saying, I have no explanation for what just happened except the grace of God. He says, for I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. And then get this, begging us with much entreaty for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. It was as if Paul stood up and was telling them about the uh, giving project, and then he finished the talk, and everybody rushed to the front, pressing in on and saying, "Let us have a part! Let us have a part!" <laughs> he said, "No, no, no, no! I just wanted to let you know. I mean, I know you know the stuff you're dealing with. Uh, you know, no, we are begging for the favor, for the privilege of participation in the support of the saints. How does that happen?" How do a people like that respond like that? Here's Paul's explanation. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. That was a rocket that just went off. These were people who loved the Lord and therefore their response defied all explanation except one. God is doing this. They love him. And it's unbelievable what results. As you deepen your love for God, that love will rocket propel obedience. Now it's possible that there are some in this room who would say, I'm not sure whether I really love Jesus or not. Lauren considered herself a good person, but she did not truly love Jesus. Here's her story about how that changed.
1: Hi, my name is Lauren Jordan and I'm the high school girls discipleship coordinator here at First Man. Basically, I am the primary high school girls leader. um, And whenever we do get leaders, I place them with some of the high school girls in Bible study or on Wednesday night when we do our small groups. In high school, I was a really good moral person. Uh, I came from a good moral family where we wanted to be good people and that was easy for me to do. And so um, more so in high school, I started going to church. My dad made me go to church. And so that's where I found myself figuring out, I guess, what the Bible said and the teachings of Jesus and that I could be a follower of him because I was such a good person. And I thought, oh, well, like, I can do this Jesus thing too. It makes sense. Like, okay, I am a Christian because I'm a good person and that's what Jesus wants. I didn't, know that I wasn't really a Christian because I did so well and people thought so highly of me and I was on the high school girls soccer team and at our banquets and different things, I would be asked to pray or people would ask me for my advice or my wisdom. So I kind of thought, all right, I'm really like doing well. Like even older people think I'm mature and a good person. So like, I must be doing this thing right. So I guess throughout my time at church, I had been in the Word, but it was only on Wednesday nights or Sunday mornings. I never opened my Bible on my own or really paid attention to what the words on the page were. And so this particular week at Super Summer, uh, we were in the Word the whole week, and I think God just illuminated His Word and made my heart ready. And so one night during worship, we were singing a song called, My Soul Sings. And in that moment, the Lord just opened my eyes that my soul didn't sing, and I really didn't love Him, and I didn't have a love or a real knowledge of who he was. I was just a good, moral person. Before Christ, I was pretty selfish and really only cared about myself and my own image and wanting my image to look like I was a moral person that really cared about others. And then after Christ, um, when he illuminated who he was to me, I began to genuinely care about people and love his church and his people um, and help them grow in the word and learning who he was. It's made all the difference in the world. And I would say each morning I want to wake up and have a quiet time and meet with him and see what he has for my day or who he has for me to talk to or speak with and just what he can do through me. And it's not so much what Lauren can do and who Lauren can please, but it's more about him and my love for him now.
0: It's possible... To be a good person, it's possible to be a moral person to some extent and yet not love the Lord. You know, to, run, to launch the rocket, and this is not connected to anything and I have the things separated so we're all safe, but in order to launch the rocket, you have to put this key in. Press that down and then you press this button, which ignites the igniter, and then it takes off. When someone comes to Christ, the key is inserted, the trigger is pressed. And they are capable of doing amazing things because they love the Lord. What does it mean, come to Jesus? Well, let me explain briefly. We were all created by God. Adam and Eve, our great, 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 great grandfather and grandmother, were placed on this planet, and they were given one command, don't eat of this tree. If you do, you will allow death to enter into this created world. They blew it. They sinned. And don't pick on them for the fact that we too are all sinners. And the penalty of sin is death. But Jesus said, I don't want people to have to die for their sin. I am willing to die in their place. And so he came and died on the cross. And in that moment, he placed a gift at the foot of the cross for every person. It has your name on it. It has my name on it. And he says, if you want it, come to the foot of the cross and unwrap the gift, which is salvation in Jesus Christ. You do that by faith. You trust in Jesus as your savior. And in that moment, the key is inserted, the button is pushed, and Jesus comes to live inside of you. And you are given the power to love truly, really, this savior and do amazing things. We love him because he first loved us. And when you open the gift, And accept what Jesus has done for you. That is the key that ignites our love for him. What I want to do is to simply take a moment and I want to pray a prayer of salvation. Many of you already know Christ. Pray for those who don't. But there may be some, there may be just one in this room who has never acknowledged Jesus Christ as Savior, just as is true in Lauren's story. So I wanna give you an opportunity to do that. Let's bow our heads and I will pray and if these words answer to your heart, you can pray them as well. Dear God, I know I am a sinner and I deserve eternal separation from you. But I believe it is the truth that Jesus died for me on the cross. And so I am choosing to embrace him as my savior And I'm choosing by faith to trust him for the rest of my life. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer after the service, I'd love to talk with you and just explore what you've just gotten into because it's the greatest thing anyone can do. You know, in 1 Peter 1.8, he says this, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. How realistic is it to love someone you've never seen? I've never seen Jesus. I love him madly, but I've never seen his face. Let me tell you about a little island called Ascension Island. It's actually in the South Atlantic Uh, Not too far from the equator, but it's on the south side of the equator. It's a little island that is located approximately equal distance from South America and Africa. My father, Charlie Fleming, was in the Army Air Corps, the predecessor of the Air Force, and he was stationed on Ascension Island for two years uh, he was a Norden bombsite specialist, which that was a top-secret thing at the time, and bombers would fly to Ascension en route to get into the European theater. There was even at some point, I guess, a squadron that was stationed there. Well, he met a man by the name of Neil, Neil Fixie, and they developed a friendship, and Neil said to him, hey, you ought to write letters to my sister, Ellen. And so they started writing letters back and forth. Letters, those are things you put stamps on them, you know, and you write, you know, and you, it's the envelope, you know, that sort of thing. And so they wrote letters for two years, Ellen Fixie and Charlie Fleming. When his two years were up and the war was over, he came back to the States and they got together for the first time. And it wasn't love at first sight because they both loved each other before they had even met each other. And shortly thereafter, they got married, and a few years later, I was born. <laughs> Loving through letters works. All of us right now are living on Ascension Island. In fact, there's gonna come a shout and we're on en route to the lord and we're going to see him face to face for the first time and be able to see the one we love right now we can exchange letters you do that by reading his letters and by praying and this is the future for all who love jesus that let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready We're writing letters now and reading his but the day is coming we're going to ascend and that's when the wedding of the Lamb occurs and we who love him madly will see him face to face and what joy that will be. Why don't you join me in prayer? I'm going to pray and then I'm going to let you pray quietly. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We see what you did for us and we are in love. Father, we love you. We see what you did. You gave up your son and we love you. We want to love you more. Show us whatever you need to show us that we might become those who love you with all their heart. In the next few moments, you go ahead and just you talk to the Lord quietly on your own and tell him you love him. In Jesus' name.